0: If you would take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 49, Isaiah 49, our text or what will serve as sort of a jumping off point is found here in Isaiah 49, the last part of verse number 15 and the beginning of verse 16. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. We've been looking at the issue, the question of memory and the loss of memory as well. And in doing so, I hope that we would develop a theology of memory. But if you've been with us during this series, you may have noticed that we are developing not only a theology of remembering and forgetting, but also of disability of any kind. To review a bit, and I will review um, a lot, if you wish, today. We've talked about practical theology. Um, practical theology is that aspect that brings together theology and practice in an attempt to redescribe the world so that our practices as Christians can remain true to the practices of God into and for the world. In other words, theology provides a lens through which we can look at the world and see it correctly. As so I've mentioned the last few Sundays, one of the tasks of scripture is to re-describe the world. See, We make sense of the world by using various kinds of stories, various stories, implied and uh, explicit. They shape how we view things, how we view the world. And I've, as I've mentioned, we, it's been suggested there are at least five primary stories or scripts that influence how we see the world in the West nationalism, religion, capitalism, psychology, and biomedicine. And these are so powerful that they have really worked themselves into our way of thinking that we oftentimes don't recognize the impact that they have and how we see the world and even how we see scripture. So that rather than looking at the world through scripture, we look at scripture through the world and we end up with something that is less than what it should be the bible offers a radical redescription of the world a world that tells a story of individualism competition a story of autonomy and freedom and choice into a place where god is the ruler and god has majesty in this creation as it is described in scripture we find that salvation comes through brokenness that strength comes from weakness or through weakness, and the gentleness is revealed as an important aspect of the Messiah. This is completely contrary to the story that we hear, for example, in nationalism or in capitalism in which competition is stressed so strongly. As I've mentioned the last couple Sundays, the idea of redescribing the world sounds almost too radical for us because it seems like instead of facing reality, we're sort of Retreating into an alternate reality, if you wish, a virtual reality. But if you think about it, re-describing something as Christians that is part of our faith. And, and we know this if we would just think about it. Think of the death of Jesus. A historian will tell you that in the first century, a peasant from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, was executed as, uh, as a common criminal by the Roman authorities. Um, some people might take it a bit... Further and say, well, he was a good example. Uh, He died as a martyr and perhaps an example we should emulate. But in scripture, we see this re-described as an event in which God in the flesh, God took on flesh. He took on himself the sins of the world and he made atonement for our sins. But this re-describing is not just about Christian events, and we need to be careful. one of the biggest things I think that we need in terms of stories is what does it mean to be a human being? What is a human being? Robert Spayman, in a book called *The Difference Between Someone and Something*, has argued that human, he's argued against the idea that human beings are defined by their capacities. In this notion that human beings are defined by their capacities, actually goes back to John Locke, several centuries back his definition of a person has been very influential and many people basically just parrot what he said. That a person is a thinking, intelligent being that has reason and reflection and can can consider itself as itself, the same thinking thing in different times and places, which it does only by that consciousness, which is inseparable from thinking and as it seems to me essential to it. In other words, being a person or having personhood is seen in terms of the capacity for self-awareness, identity, continuity of thinking, a sense of self over time, and consciousness, but above all, memory. Which is to say, if you have no memory, then you're in fact not a person. One may fail to realize that if one accepts John Locke's definition of person, then if you lose any of these capacities it would imply that, in fact, you're no longer a person. So, theoretically, one could be a person for 60 or 70 or 80 years, but that at a certain point in their life lose certain capacities and then fall into the category of non-person. Either gradually or suddenly, this individual that we knew as a person suddenly is no longer seen as a person, but put into the category of non-person. By the way, it's somewhat bizarre, but if you take Locke's definition, then technically when you and I fall asleep, we are non-persons, because there is no self-awareness. Okay, And in many ways, there is not consciousness. So does this mean it's okay to kill somebody if they're asleep because they're a non-person? That might seem rather drastic, but as we go along in the sermon, you will see that in fact there are many today who are saying that people who then drift into the category of non-person don't have the right to live anymore and we have the duty to end their lives. One philosopher describes a person as someone who is capable of valuing his or her own life. He then goes on to say that that's why it's wrong to murder a person if they value their life. But if they don't value their life, then it's okay to kill them. Because they're not really a person because they don't value their life. What does it mean to be a human being? What does the scripture tell us about it? As we saw last Sunday, and I want to review it again at this point, there are at least five things that we find in scripture about what it means to be human. John Swinton in Scotland, who has done extensive work in the area of dementia and practical theology, has been very helpful in this regard. Five things, to be dependent, to be embodied, to be relational, to be broken, and to be loved. Dependent, human beings are creatures who are wholly dependent on God. There is nothing that anyone has that has not been given to that person. We as Christians should accept and should confirm, affirm, that we are radically dependent, and this is what it means to be a human being. This is contrary to the Western stories in which freedom, individuality, and autonomy are prized. We want to be independent. The reality is we are, in fact, quite dependent. We are dependent upon God, and we're dependent on other human beings, families, communities. But again, fundamentally, we are dependent upon God We need to recognize that all that we have is gift. Everything we have is a gift from God. We don't value one another because of capacities, or we shouldn't, um, because whatever capacity, whatever ability a person has is a gift from God. So you can't say, oh, you're valuable because you do this. The value a person has, the gift they have comes from God. And so we shouldn't simply say, well... Yeah, I really like you. I think you're important because you have these gifts. Memory is one of those gifts. And if one begins to lose his or her memory and become more dependent on others, does this mean that they are less of a person or they're less human? I would say it's quite the opposite. When a person moves from a sense of independence to the reality of dependence, they don't become less human at all. Someone who will remain nameless, sitting right over there, um, has famously referred to the first few months of life as the pot roast stage, in which the baby really can't do much but sit there, or lay there, and be fed, and changed, and have his or her every whim attended to. The time comes when the child moves away from that and they begin to recognize people and they begin to smile and begin to coo. And as time goes on, they even learn how to speak. In the pot roast stage, we acknowledge that the child is totally dependent. But somehow we lose a sense of that and as they grow we sort of move them out of the dependent stage to more of an independent stage. But what happens when you reach a point in your life that you revert to the pot roast stage? Where someone needs to feed you and maybe even change you and bathe you Are you less of a person then? Are you less human then? As creatures, we are, by nature, by definition, dependent. That's truly important for us to see. Rather than saying, I think, therefore, I am, with Descartes, we should say, I am because I am created, dependent, gifted, and loved in all circumstances and for all time. The earliest months of life, in the last days of life, I am dependent upon God. The second thing about a human being is that human beings are embodied creatures. We experience the world in and through our bodies. In Genesis 2, we are told of the creation of the first human, Adam. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. We tend, I think, because of Greek philosophy, to see ourselves as made up of two parts body and soul. This is not correct. And Wendell Berry has a wonderful passage on this God did not make a body and put a soul in it like a letter into an envelope. He formed man out of dust. By breathing his breath into it, he made the dust live. It's really important. He made the dust live. The analogy of the letter in the envelope is good, but I think a better analogy for me is that of a balloon. That we view our bodies as a balloon and our souls, the part that God gave us, as the air that causes the balloon to expand. And so death then becomes the deflation of the balloon. But this is wrong. Human beings are animated earth, which contains the very breath of God. We should not imagine that the breath of God is simply in our lungs or in our brains. I think that's where we'd be most likely to put it. It is in every cell of our body. We are living dirt, living earth. Our whole body is not just the brain. God took the dust and created a human body. Yes, there is a brain. That's one component of it. But it is what God has given to every part of our body that makes us human. And so we can enjoy God and glorify him forever. It is God who has put boundaries on our physical capabilities. It is God who sustains our lives and we are limited, but those limits have significance and we should recognize that. But if in fact we are embodied creatures and the breath Of God is what gives us life. Think of the implications. Death is not air leaving the balloon, your soul leaving your body. And resurrection isn't the air being put back in the balloon. Resurrection will be God breathing into what remains of us in a miraculous way and giving us new life. And if death is not letting air out of the balloon, then murder is also not letting air out of the balloon. It is, in fact, an assault on holy ground because God has breathed into us. We shouldn't say, well, anyway, the person went to heaven, so it, you know, it's, it's too bad they got killed, they got murdered, but you know, their soul went away and so they're fine. See, violence against a person is not simply violence against the balloon. It is, in fact, against the whole person. One who has the very breath of God in him or her. Every per- think of the person you despise the most in this life. That person has the breath of God in him or her. This is why the Old Testament laws seem rather harsh to many people in terms of their penalties for assaults against a person. I think they recognize far better than we do that the person is unique. This person has the breath of God. In him or her. One more thing the implications. A disability is not air being let out of the balloon. Maybe not all the way out, but this person's a little deflated because they don't have the capacities that they used to have. It's not a loss of personhood. In the same way that if somebody, if I had to have my left arm amputated, you wouldn't say, well, boy, I'm not quite sure you're human. I don't know about your personhood status there. Or if you have a tooth pulled, something removed from your body, does that make you less human? And yet somehow, when it comes to the mind and the memory, we get all worried about that. We forget that we are embodied creatures. The third thing about humans is that we are relational. We are loved into existence and marked by special favor by the creator. All things are created by God. But his relationship to us is in fact unique. Uh, in Genesis 1.26 when God gives the command to go out and be fruitful and multiply and have dominion people get all worried about dominion but stop and think a minute. God is in relation to Adam. God is speaking to Adam. He doesn't say that to the other creatures. He says to Adam this is what you're supposed to do. And then he gives him instructions. And Amazing, above all things, is when Adam and Eve sin and basically say, we do not want to be in the same relationship with you, God continues to relate. The destructive power of human disobedience does not stop God from relating. And even though it's messed up in our lives, we still relate to one another. We are relational creatures. Adam found his fulfillment in being in relation to God, and then when God made Eve, in being relation to Eve. We are relational creatures, which leads to number four. We are to be human is to be loved. We are in loving relationships. To love humanly is to love. I mentioned last week that love is an act of engagement with another at a deep and personal level, which states clearly in word and action that I want you to exist. It's not that I desire you, uh, it is I want you to exist. It requires determination, fidelity, and an intentional desire to be with the other, to continue to love them no matter what. Because this is how God loves us, his creation. This is the way we are to love one another. When we rebel against God, God's love persists. When we forget who we are and our roots and we live lives without love, God's love continues to persist. To be human is to be loved by God persistently, and to live humanly is to show persistent love toward others. This leads to the fifth and final thing about what it means to be human. It means to be broken. The necessity of recognizing that we are dependent upon God and that God loves us, is something that Adam and Eve pushed away. They did not want to be dependent on God. Is that really what God said? God knows if you ate this, you won't need him. Basically, you'll know good from evil. And they pushed aside dependence on God and God's love. And is it too much to suggest that we do the same thing day after day in our lives? And we see it in the surrounding culture. People want to be independent from God, autonomous. They want to have God-like freedom, and knowledge. It's interesting when you read 19th century literature from scientists, they, you know, they think they knew everything. And we sort of laugh at them, but we're sort of at the same place now where we think we know almost everything. Um, it is a desire to be independent. Human beings have managed and continue to manage to alienate themselves from the one source of life and love. They reject the sustaining love of God. But we are broken. And to be human means that decay is inevitable. But our humanness is not diminished by our decay. When we begin to decline, this is simply a sign that we are human beings. This is what it means to be human. We are living out our lives in a creation that is broken. As Bob Dylan said, everything is broken, but it is in the process of being redeemed. So if you lose your memory, it doesn't mean that somehow you move from being a person to a non-person. To be human is to live, into a world, is to live in a world that is broken, to get old, And to forget things. This is how scripture defines, if you wish, for our purposes, re describes what it means to be human. And it runs counter, contrary to what many other stories uh, we hear around us. Oliver Sacks noted Neurology's favorite word is deficit. Denoting an impairment or incapacity of neurological function, loss of speech, loss of language, loss of memory, loss of vision, loss of dexterity, loss of identity, and myriad other other lacks and losses of specific functions or faculties. Uh, I think Sachs would argue this is not necessarily wrong, but this isn't the place where we're supposed to begin the discussion of what it means to be human for at least two reasons. First of all, it fails to take into account that everyone is broken, okay? To different degrees, but we are all broken. But secondly, it assumes that there is, if you wish, a baseline, norm, typical. And then others who don't meet that are seen as defective. So there's a baseline of normality. And who decides what is normal? Well, interestingly enough, it is quite different than what we find in scripture of being dependent, embodied, relational, loved, and broken. So how is the individual viewed? If an individual begins to lose his or her memory or lose some type of capacity, are they still seen as a person? Are they now a patient? And there's nothing wrong with being a patient. In fact, there's something almost marvelous about the word patient. It means that you endure. But somehow they seem to be less person, less of a person, and they're now in the category of being a patient. Someone who needs medical care, not necessarily a person. At this point, I want to, I want to point out, we need to recognize that our words shape our worlds. The words we use, in fact, are quite important. And so as we try to develop a practical theology of remembering and forgetting, we need to take care in this matter. Let me be clear, I'm not rejecting modern medicine, what it has to offer. But I think what we should consider is the deficits, if you wish, in its vocabulary. And amazingly, we use that vocabulary too oftentimes rather than the vocabulary of scripture. so we may in fact go to the doctor and speak of being unhappy of relational disconnection with regard to these deficits but we would not talk about sin or love or god or faithfulness or discipleship we use the vocabulary of the stories of the world and those words begin to shape the way we view things and rather than being biblical in our view we in many ways take on the views of biomedicine, capitalism, nationalism, whatever. If we see people as defective as opposed to normal or typical, we see them in a different light. And at this point, the diagnosis begins. And to diagnose means involving categories. What makes up the person, the cognitive, the intellectual, the emotional component? Then these components are broken down into elements, memory, language functions, calculation, attention, general intelligence, organization of movement, orientation to time and place. And in the process of naming and categorizing, it begins to shape the way we view the world and more importantly, the way we view other human beings. So, let me, let me draw out some implications of a faulty world view of viewing a human differently than what scripture says. To follow the story of some is to conclude that if you lose your memory, either through dementia or other diseases, you lose your personhood. That is the implication. For many people, in their story, memory is the defining aspect of what it means to be human. Human. Listen to what one filmmaker uh, stated. You have to begin to lose your memory, if only in bits and pieces, to realize that memory is what makes our lives. Life without memory is no life at all. Just as an intelligence without the possibility of expression is not really an intelligence. Our memory is our coherence, our reason, our feeling, even our action. Without it, we are nothing. Well, Wait a minute. If, in fact, every aspect of my being, every molecule of me, has the breath of God in it, if I am animated dirt, holy ground, then how can I say that memory is what defines me as a human being? As some people see their story, as they see it play out, they would rather no longer be alive, no longer exist, than to experience uh, the loss of memory. And to follow this storyline, some conclude that a person who has no memory is no longer a person and their lives should be ended. This one person in an interview argued, putting it brutally, you'd be licensing people to put others down. Actually, I think, why not? Because the real person has gone already and all that's left is just the body of a person and nobody wants to be remembered in this condition. They've lost their memory and memory is what it means to be human They lose their memory, then they're not human, so we might as well dispose of them. You can go a step further, and now we're just not talking about the person who's lost their memory, but the people around them. In one person's words, those who have lost their memory, those who are disabled, quote, are wasting other people's lives and should have the decency to take their own lives. To take their own lives. You might ask, why this issue, the loss of memory? Why is this a waste of other people's lives? Because interestingly enough, cancer, appendicitis, and then you could just do a whole list of various human ailments, are not perceived as affecting your personhood. You can have cancer and still be a person, but if you lose your memory, people would say, maybe you're not a person anymore. As the person I quoted earlier said, the real person is gone. Well, remember, we're not a balloon with air in it and the air is left, so therefore we can say, well, the person has gone. Okay. And I think as Christians, we've really failed in this area because we see the breath of God as soul and the body, and so we discount the body. And when you have someone who is severely disabled, mentally disabled, um, we see them as less than what they are. They have the life of God in them. The story we find in scripture is not that someone who has lost their memory is no longer a person. As we seek to deal with memory and the loss of memory, we need to be reminded again and again what it means to be human and a person. Human history is filled with great violence against other human beings, but the 20th century, I think, surpasses all that's gone before. And I think one of the things that has made this possible is a wrong view of what it means to be human. Uh, as it's been argued many times by others, it's easier to kill another person as you see, if you see them as not human. And so oftentimes in war, the enemy will have, you know, you have a pejorative term to refer to the enemy. You don't call them what they're called. You you have a name for them. You see them as less than human. And in the 20th century, we've seen genocide time and time again. I think in part because the human being is simply seen as a balloon with air. You let the air out, you've got a flat balloon, and that's it. And as Christians, we have to say no, a thousand times no. This person has the life of God in them. Those of you who are familiar with modern ethics will probably know the name Peter Singer. He's been at the forefront of challenging suggestions that people with cognitive, with significant cognitive disabilities, are persons uh, who should in, are not persons. They should, in fact, be put aside. He's known for his view on the infanticide of disabled children. In his view, to take the life of a severely cognitively disabled child is morally appropriate. This is the right thing to do, to kill a child, because the child lacks the capacity for self-awareness, self-control, a sense of the future, a sense of the past. By the way, by that definition, I, I I know quite a few adults who may not fit into the category of personhood. But a severely cognitively disabled child lacks the capacity to relate to others, concern for others, communication, curiosity. From his perspective, there's nothing unique about human beings. And so when you have a defective human being, the best thing you can do is kill that person and get rid of them. If you've read any of Peter Singer, I think it's safe to say we would disagree with many of his views and even find them repugnant. Late in her life, his mother Cora developed Alzheimer's disease and was no longer able to recognize herself or her son. She became what Peter Singer would call, what her son would call, a non-person. And so what did her son do? he hired a team of health care workers to take care of her around the clock. This from a man who said he had no respect for people who donate funds for research on breast cancer or heart disease in the hope that it might indirectly save them or other people around them. He said they should instead give the money to the poor. In an interview, Singer admitted that hiring health care workers was probably not the best use of his money. Later in that same interview, Singer said quietly, perhaps it, that is putting someone to death, is more difficult than I thought before because it is different when it's your mother. It is worth noting that in the most recent update of his book, Practical Ethics, he maintains a position and lays out a moral framework that it is okay to kill someone who has dementia. different when it's your mother. We cannot make decisions. We cannot develop a theology of memory of forgetting and remembering based on our emotions, or our relations. But this is often how people think and act. We are to uphold the story the scripture tells us of what it means to be human and allow it to shape our view and our actions and our thinking. In examining the matter of memory we must begin with God, who is the basis of memory, as we have seen. And rather than focusing on ourselves, our faith is to rest in God. Rather than trusting our memory or our intellectual capacities to assent to the truth, we are to rest in God's grace. As we look at scripture, we are to see how it redescribes creation. And in many ways, it presents a radically different view of the world than we are accustomed to. And we need to ask ourselves, as we develop a theology of remembering, what story will we follow? Will we rest in God's grace and his ability to remember? Will we rest in the memories of God? Or will we define ourselves by our capacities and therefore redefine ourselves when we lose those capacities or when those around us lose the capacity? At the beginning, I read to you from Isaiah 49. Let me read more of the passage beginning in verse 14. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have put our faith in you. We have accepted the gospel. We believe what you say. And yet we find oftentimes that the way we view things is not from your revelation in scripture, but from the surrounding culture. And when it comes to something as basic as what it means to be human, and by extension, what it means to have memory, our views are far more of the world than they are of Scripture. By your grace, may we rest in Scripture. May we rest in you. And come to see what it means to be human. And the gift of memory and what the loss of memory means. Help us to see that we are ever in your love, that you breathe into us life, and it is you who sustains us, second by second. May we come to see that the violence in our culture is more profound than we ever imagined, because it is, in fact, an attack on holy ground on those made in your image those who have your life in them and may we when this is all said and done have a deeper love for our fellow human beings see them as we should and for those who are disabled who have less of a capacity that we would love them as much, if not more, and not see them as less than human. But love them broken as they are, because you have loved us broken as we are. I thank you for bringing us together today, for the privilege of worshiping you, May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.